Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be talking to an award-winning poet, an award-winning translator, an editor, and a narrative non-fiction writer-at-large for the Daily Maverick, Karen Shimka. Karen has worked as a journalist and a political writer and has been a freelancer for the past two decades. Her features and news articles have appeared in more than two dozen print publications and she currently writes features for the Daily Maverick on issues ranging from ventilators to food waste, hunger to domestic violence. In 2013, Karen was the winner of the Silt Foundation's Writers' Retreat and a finalist in the South African Literary Awards for Poetry. Karen was awarded the Ingrid Jonker Award for Poetry for her debut collection, Bear and Breaking, in 2014, and her second collection, Navigate, was published in 2017. Karen has translated five books, edited seven more, authored another six, and contributed to six collections and anthologies. She won the South African Literary Awards Translation Award in 2016 and the Sol Plachi Translation Award in 2019, both for her translation of Flame in the Snow, the love letters of Ingrid Jonker and Andre Brink. In her acceptance speech for that award, she said, Translation is the rendering of meaning from one language into another. Translation is conversion, it is movement. A translator is able to change a reader's understanding of the world, or at the very least, supplement it. In the process of presenting the experiences of one language group to another, the essential literary byproduct of imagination is switched on, and as so much research over the years has shown, imagination is the route to empathy, and empathy the route to social change. Translation is a political act. I was lucky enough to include Karen's writing in Living While Feminist for her piece titled Change, and I think she did a fantastic job of translating the experiences of a changing body so that every reader would have been able to empathize and learn. So welcome, Karen. I am so happy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Jen. It's absolutely wonderful to be chatting to you, and um, I feel as though I'm speaking to one of the sort of um, real faces of feminism in South Africa. Thank you. I have so much that I want to talk to you about, not least of all your piece, because we had a really lovely, I think you really made a wonderful effort in the email exchange around the podcast as well to give a little bit more. But I think maybe let's start with the piece called Change and we'll meander from there, jumping in and out. So change reveals so many interesting points for discussion. It was hard to decide where to start, but one of them was feminism and career choices and both how limited the terms to describe these choices seemed and yet also how wonderful it was for the generation that you were writing about to even have or perceive these as choices. You speak in your piece about three friends who you worked with as a student waitress and the different lives that you went on to pursue um, career women who chose not to have children, a stay-at-home mom or what would have been called a housewife. I don't know if people still use the term housewife. And then your path, which was to become a freelancer, something that you've done successfully for two decades, which I'm sure all freelancers and listening to this will just be like amazed and astounded by. So could you maybe reflect on your choice to become a freelancer and how it was related to your feminist journey? I 
I, uh, whoa, where does one start? <laughs> where does a journey start? I don't know. Um, I think that possibly just, let me just start with your question about how I decided to become a freelancer. At the time that I fell pregnant with my first child um, in 1999, I was writing for the Cape Times and I was on the political staff. And I was the only woman and I had also, in, um, at the start, been the only woman on the, on the team. And most of the women I had known um, as a journalist um, who worked uh, at newspapers um, seemed to fall into particular um, sort of categories. Um, they were either the kind of women who didn't want, uh, who didn't have children and didn't, um, or didn't, or had them and didn't speak about them at all. Um, or there were one or two, Paula Frey at the Star, I remember, and, and also at the Star was a woman um, called um, Colleen Ryan, um, who's left South Africa subsequently. And I remember both of them being very um, outspoken about their families and their children uh, and being brilliant journalists and, um, and, and doing their work really well, but without ever hiding the fact that they were that they were family women, you know, women who had families. So, but when it came to, when it came to that point in my life where I was going to have a child, I actually didn't have a plan. I had no friends who had children and I had no sense of what it was like to have children. I do remember saying to a male colleague of mine, um, some, he said, what were our plans for once I'd had the baby and I wanted to come back to work. And I said, didn't really know. Um, my husband at that stage was working at home. Um, and I said that we would find a way to juggle it. And I remember him laughing. He had children. And he said that I clearly had absolutely no idea about what it was like to have babies. And it was true. I mean, <laughs> absolutely no idea. Anyway, then whenever I think about my feminism, I think about how my body has, has my body has forced me to think about feminism. Mm -hmm. So what happened was that I um, I had my son and he just didn't sleep for 14 years. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I thought babies did. I thought babies, you know, kind of came out and you fed them and then they slept and, you know, three times a day they would have food. <laughs> and then the rest of the time they slept. I don't know what I was thinking. Anyway, um, I, had, I had had a cesarean section, um, which was interesting because I felt like I had failed at some important, you know, job as a woman. I had failed to give birth um, naturally. So I felt like I, you know, I didn't think any of this. I just felt it. I wasn't thinking it through. I thought it was very important for me to breastfeed because I had to make up for some major failure. Um, and breastfeeding is so hard. Oh, my God, it's so hard. <laughs> I had no idea. But there's this wonderful organization called La Leche League, um, and I was really surrounded by women who showed me how to do it and um, who gave me the sort of support. And I think it was the first time I'd ever had any exposure to the way in which women support one another. Right. So then I'm breastfeeding and I'm getting it right and it's going really well. And my four months of maternity leave um, are done and I have to leave the baby at home. And I'm just um, appalled by this because how's the baby going to eat? And I didn't feel like pumping milk. And I thought, well, you know, journalism is quite flexy. You know, you can come and go. But if you're, um, if you're doing politics and, and uh, somebody calls, uh, you know, a press conference, you can't say, I'm sorry, I, I can't, I've got to go and feed my baby quickly. I kind of just carried on in that month that I was back 
feeding my baby whenever I thought he needed to be fed, just quickly rushing home to feed him. And I got back to work and I realized I actually didn't want to be doing this anymore. And it was really wonderful because everybody was surrounded by all these men. And I would just go, I'm sorry, I have to go and breastfeed now. And it was as though, you know, I'd, I'd, so it was, it was as though I'd flashed them, you know. In the <laughs> it, was like, it was just like they didn't want to talk about breasts and breastfeeding in the meetings. So I kind of, I'm thinking I didn't want to do this anymore. You know, I, I really wanted to kind of be there for him and gave me an opportunity to freelance. So I started freelancing and um, I've been doing it for 20 years and I also don't know how I do it. I don't know how I do I don't know how one does it, Jen. I mean, every now and again, you have this moment, you think, oh my God, nobody's ever going to ask me to do anything again. This is it. It's the end of my career. And then something happens. So I don't know. But you've touched on so much, you know, just around the idea of, of breastfeeding as this very essential piece of labor that women do for their children. And the weird strange vibes around it in our politics in our workplaces you know in restaurants even people are getting chased out for breastfeeding I'm wondering if you've noticed any change in that or if any of your network colleagues have said that it's changed since you left the newsroom no actually it's strange I haven't really thought about it much you know um I um this sounds terribly selfish, but I think that I, when I, once I'd resolved for myself what was important around breastfeeding, I just kind of did it, and I thought, well, everybody else is just going to have to, you know, fit in with whatever I do, <laughs> which would horrify my brother and my uncles if I suddenly hauled out a breast, you know. Um, <laughs> so I didn't. I haven't actually spoken to people um, a lot more about that. I always thought when I had uh, when I had my child that because I had seen people feeding their babies it felt as though it was what needed to be done you know it couldn't it couldn't wait and babies didn't didn't have a program the interesting thing for me around um, breastfeeding though was that it as a, it's its own it's, a, it's its own little political world you know and um there are women who who are very judgmental about women who bottle feed and there are um bottle feeders who feel um, like they need to be defensive about the fact that they that they bottle feed so it's all you know it's always this ongoing uh conversation about who who woman's best you know who knows how to woman properly and last year in fact you know my story is about um is about menopausal change the one the essay that i wrote for you and i remember at one point last year reading an, uh, a magazine article in which a woman people were speaking about uh hormone replacement therapy now i've my my theory about anything having babies breastfeeding is I don't have a theory until I can experience it and I know what it feels like because because life just you know if you say that you will never in your whole life wear skinny pants skinny jeans <laughs> in your life you wear skinny jeans and someone will remember that you said you would never wear skinny <laughs> jeans and judge you for having changed so my theory is rather don't have a theory until you get there and you know what it's like so I was not expecting menopause to be absolutely horrible because my mother said that she was, you know, it was very easy for her. I, I since doubted. I just think it was more, um, you know, just not something you talk about. You just don't talk about stuff like that. Um, but I wasn't expecting it to be hard. But the, my hot flushes were absolutely appalling. Um, and I was reading an article by somebody who was saying, oh, I, um, you know, it was about hormones and menopause and all of that and somebody was saying 
sort of very confidently, you know, I'm not going to do hormone replacement therapy because, you know, I prefer to do things naturally. And it felt like the top of my head blew off, you know, I just thought, you know, that is just that kind of judgmental language that drives me insane. You are not having the same menopause as somebody else. Other people's menopauses are completely different to yours. There isn't yeah. one standard for anything, breastfeeding, hormone replacement, whatever. But um, but there's always this this, you know, I'm I'm just I'm just better at womaning than you are, you know. <laughs> but I think it has something to do with how comfortable we are with silence in in, you know, as women and the silencing around talking about women's bodies and just the idea that even with birth, that there's something that's called a natural birth. Like we use technology ever since we've had it for all sorts of things. You know, even with breastfeeding and bottle feeding, I think all of these conversations come up from the policing of women with the idea of what is natural, which often means women should suffer in silence, which is just so, you know, so harmful to honest conversation and so harmful to people's bodies at the end of the day. But I think your your piece brought that up so much about how much time and energy women tend to spend on trying to control what are often uncontrollable bodies. Your piece talks about perimenopause and menopause um, and of all the side effects of the things that are uncontrollable. So you spoke about tears coming up, hot flashes, you know, your libido being affected, menstruation as a child, aging, thinning hair, just your body as this thing that no matter how much power you try to exert over it, it will always you know, give you the middle finger at the end of the day and just you have to decide how you react to that. So do you want to tell me a bit more about why you chose to write about menopause specifically for this piece? I think I've always felt since I was very little totally embodied as though, you know, I I, I am not my, my mind. I'm not what I see or hear or think. I am everything that's inside my inside my body so it is when my body knocks on the door of my mind that I become aware of things and it just pushes me forward a little bit and I remember for instance that I developed breasts much earlier than anybody else and that I I started my periods before anybody had spoken to me about periods I had no idea what they were um, I was in um, standard three which is grade five which is how old is one there six seven eight nine ten I think so I was really really young and it was it was shocking and it was I found it appalling that my body was calling attention to itself calling my attention to itself I didn't want to be thinking about my body I was very the, the old-fashioned, I think, word that was used for me and my type of person was that I was a tomboy. Um, I, I didn't, um, I didn't really like dresses and things. And I and I played roughly, you know. I I, I went on adventures, and my, my my friends were mostly boys. And I remember at the primary school that I was at um, that I would arrive early in the morning in order to play soccer with the boys, which wasn't really done but it wasn't questioned you know nobody questioned me about it I just went and played soccer with the boys and then all of a sudden I started developing breasts and um it's really sore I don't know whether you remember this but um when you start getting breasts I remember wishing that I could have like a like an like a a knight's armor on my chest so that my breasts wouldn't be touched because they were just touched or bumped in the slightest way even by my own elbow or whatever it would hurt so it was, I felt really um, 
my, my body was being so disloyal. I, ha I had a thing that I did. I went riding on my bicycle. I went adventuring in fields and things with my with my friends, and they were mostly boys. Um, and I went, you know, I played soccer and things like that. And then all of a sudden, there's this thing being imposed on me. I didn't ask for it. I didn't want it. And it made me, it, made, it forced me to have to think about myself in a different in a different way. Um, and it, it always felt to me like I was being deprived of fun somehow, you know. My body was depriving me of fun. And, and it's so interesting when I, in fact, I think I did mention that. I did mention that in the, in, the, in the essay because that's how I felt when I was going through menopause and I was having these terrible hot flushes and I couldn't, I couldn't sleep at night and I couldn't, you know, I was worn out and I, I couldn't concentrate properly because I couldn't sleep. And the urgency when the, when the heat, when that heat wave comes on you to just get rid of your clothes um, interrupts everything. And and it and it interrupted um, for me. It interrupted um, uh, the most satisfying sexual relationship that I've ever had in my life. You know, mm. um, one that didn't require, as I say in the piece, it, it, you know, it uh, it didn't require anything from me but my own naked and joyous desire. It didn't require me to also be somebody else's servant. Mm. Um, and um, and it freed me up to be able to have a sexual relationship that I had never had before in my life. And now, all of a sudden, I was having, you know, these terrible heat flushes and things. I couldn't bear it when he came near me because it was just too hot. And again, it felt to me like my, my fun was being spoiled by my body, you know. So there is, um, but there's always been this, 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 uh, very intimate relationship that I have with my body where I don't think about it all until it pisses me off, you know. And I know this is not a good feminist thing to say, but it does piss me off. You know, I'm in the middle. I just want to get on with my life. You know, I don't want to have to faff with, you know, blood and hotness mm. and tits, you know. So many people are going to relate to what you're saying in whatever body that they're in. And I'm very interested with new movements around this idea of body positivity and, you know, body acceptance. And I think you mentioned briefly um, how wonderful it is to have your daughter and to, to just see how much of the stuff that you battled and railed against is just completely common, common sense to her. And um, in your piece, you also have a fantastic quote from Manchester Happened, which is, we see ourselves in the eyes that look at us which reminded me of the Anais Neen quote, which was, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. And how when you are a person who is embodied and in touch with your body and, and link it to your identity in a, in a sort of unconscious way, when it does betray you, it feels like a violation and it really does feel like your body has let you down. And I'm wondering now if you think maybe the next generation of feminists will contribute more, more to us feeling freer um, by encouraging body positivity and by talking about this stuff more, I think there's more and more literature every day around the body and the changes of the body. And I think particularly when we're talking about consciousness around the gender spectrum, how embodiment can be used to police and silence around the body is always a bad thing. So I suppose really just do you think that they're going to set us all free? Um, and, and what do you think we can do in the interim to try and navigate what's going on with our bodies? Um, it's um, it's such an interesting question. Uh, I don't know that I have the answer necessarily. I hate having answers in any case. I, mean, I, just, I don't really think questions are more interesting than answers. But um, I have just finished writing another book, which I think you might want to speak about at some point. <laughs> part of, part of this uh, part of the book is that I 
decided that I was going to include a, a conversation between Gen X and Gen Z. And um, so I had a conversation with my daughter about um, various things. And the way I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in the conversation between the generations at the moment. I'm very interested in my own generation's um, rigidity. <laughs> I think it's so interesting that people my age think they know it all, you know, and, and yet our, the world is so different now for, for young people than it was for us when we were young. In any case, I had this conversation with her and there was a lot of uh, interesting stuff that came out of it. And then she said to me, it was a sort of a Q&A between us, and she asked, what do you admire about our generation? And I said, I really admire that you seem to be so much more accepting of the various bodies we, we come in. And she went, really? How? Why? And I said to her, well, we had this one idea about what beauty must be, you know. It was a straight, straight blonde hair on a tall white female, possibly with blue eyes, and yeah, you know, and and a slightly tanned skin or whatever, you know. And I just think that the variations on what beauty can be now and the fact that they're accepted is I find it so thrilling and so important. These women are doing such important work, accepting one another and supporting one another and being good to one another. But interestingly, my daughter said that she didn't think that her generation was really like that. And she thought that appearances are still really, really important and that people are still caught up in ideas and ideals around beauty. And, and she doesn't think it's something that they've got sorted. So, and then I said to her, well, maybe, maybe the next generation will have it sorted. It doesn't seem to be sorted yet. But we've come yeah, along. Yeah. No, I think we've come a huge way. I mean, even if you just think since Naomi Wolf's The Beauty Myth in the 90s to now, like that book when I was reading, checking through it the other day, there's so much that's irrelevant that is just no longer stuff that you see. But I suppose when, you know, during that time, we didn't have to deal with social media and Instagram and the constant presentation of self to the outside world and how that can still create ideals that limit people's movement. I mean, I think, you know, the patriarchy, I was reading uh, Glennon Doyle's Untamed the other day, and it says, like, if you imagine it like the patriarchy as pollution that we're all breathing in, it still gets in. Even if you are aware that you're breathing it in, it still goes into your body and it sort of manifests there in your ideas and what you think about as beautiful. That is just such a wonderful, that is such a wonderful um, image. I am, um, I'm going to be quoting that all over the place from now on. It really, it really is exactly like that, you know. And um, and you have to examine. And I suppose um, racism is the same. It's it mm. is a kind of pollution. So so any any kind of um, thought that you have, you have to ask yourself: Is this a pure? Is this a pure um, thoughts of mine, or is it part of the pollution that I've inhaled? I thought I love that. And uh, there was also another, I think it may have been Brene Brown, but I'm not sure. I really do need to check this up, which was if you're feeling bad about yourself, you should ask yourself who benefits from you feeling that way. If you're thinking about the capitalist complex as well, it's still going to want the next generation to buy stuff. So how is it going to sell it to them if they don't feel terrible, you know, even if it's selling it to you as some form of self-actualization? That implies that you're not actualized enough by yourself at home in your pajamas or naked or whatever. So I think there is, I mean, capitalism is very sneaky beast. It will definitely get them in some way. Yeah, yeah. 
But maybe that's, a, I think, talking about beauty and about capitalism is an interesting segue into the idea of the work that you do to pay the bills and the work that you do for your heart. I mean, when we were talking on email, you mentioned, you know, poetry is my heart work. If it could pay the bills, it would be all that I'd do. And then you're like, no, but actually, I really love doing the features journalism. So I wonder if you can tell me a little bit more about your writing life, given that you've had such success and you've been so productive, just overwhelmingly, <laughs> definitely life goals productive. So how do you choose which writing to do when and, and what? Is, and then you can tell us a little bit more about your latest project. I don't know that I don't know that I choose that much. I do whatever pretty much is um before me. I think one of the one of the, the important lessons that I learned um, at the beginning of my of my journalism career was to not um, to not undercharge. And I had to become better and better at that. I do not have a capitalist brain. I wish I just had a little bit of a capitalist brain, you know. I had to force myself to to demand what I'm what I'm worth. And an interesting thing you said just now that I was so uh, that I've been so productive. You know, one doesn't, you don't feel like you're being productive in the middle of your life. You know, you just do whatever you're doing. And at some point, um, so I was, um, my son was born in, in at the end of 1999, and then I got divorced um, in 2010. So then I had to do this, I had to make this work on, on my own. I knew that I was I'm, I'm fundamentally unsuited to working with other people anymore simply not not, be, not because I don't like other people um but because I I find the idea of having to to fit yourself into somebody else's office hours peculiar you know because I'm I am productive and I I can work on my own but I don't necessarily want to work from eight until five you know oh. I want to be able to call the shots on this because between for for many years on my talk my daughter's still at school but while my children were at school I want to be able to go and fetch them it felt like a very important thing to do and in fact I think mothering in a feminist way is is a very important thing to do and I'm I feel like um my contribution to the world in the scrabble for survival has been mostly around you know um I I think that I've I've done a little bit better with this generation than was done with our generation and I think that I've brought up two good feminists I wanted to be there for them um but they also were um, very aware that what I did with my life in order to make money and put food on the table was something that wasn't just a job. I felt, I I feel incredibly privileged to be able to do what I'm good at. And, um, and I love writing and I love, love the variety of my work. I mean, it's just always something different. You know, there's um, editing and translation, writing um, and then poetry. Um, and all kinds of other things, you know, book projects in between, interviews, panels, all of that kind of thing. And everything that I do is interesting enough for us to be able to have dinner time conversations. It was, and it was very important for me that my children knew that that there was a way to work um, that that one could feel um, happy to be getting out of bed every morning, mm-hmm. um, and that you didn't need to necessarily um, sell your soul um, to some corporate organisation, and that being being happy in what you're doing um, meant that you are able to um, live your life well, put food on the table um, without. Um, it does does mean that you know there's not excess money. We haven't been on big holidays or drive big cars or anything, but um, but 
that there is something else that's important, which is the quality of life that you have with the people around you, but also that you can co contribute in some way to the kind of society that you hope to live in um, if you do the work that you love. In 2010, when I had to kind of go it alone and I needed to become a little bit more focused about the way that I did my work, I drew up my CV for the first time in 10 years. And that was when I became aware that I'd really done a lot of things. I, you know, you forget, I had to really dig. I had to really dig around in my, in my computer to remember all the things that I'd done. And I found them and it was, it was such a... Um, such a revelatory moment because I realized that I had done so much and I thought that all I'd been doing was sort of scrabbling and, and mothering, you know. Um, anyway, it was during, you know, I'd, I'd always just sort of um, played around with creative writing, but it was during the period that I was getting divorced that I, um, my, my poems became focused around a certain topic and I realized that there was something here that could, could become um, a book, which is when I, when I published Bear and Breaking. And, and I would love to be able to write poetry every single day and, 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 and have projects and think about the way that I was going to do a new book. But that's just not how poetry has fitted into my life, unfortunately. It's always taken a backseat because I'm always just trying to pay the bills at the end of the month. So um, poetry fits into the little cracks in my life. And it's like a, a, a stress valve in a way. You know, all the it's all the sort of random little bits and pieces of thoughts, ideas, images um, mm. that uh, come into your brain that you can quickly release um, into a poem. And maybe later make something of, um, which I which I really love about poetry. I mean, you know, you can write about the most arbitrary things in poetry, <laughs> and then you've written it and it's out of your system, which is fantastic. Um, and as for the rest of the work, I don't really know what to say about it, except a really I really enjoy what I do. I really enjoy editing and working with with writers. Um, I really, I really enjoy translating because it's almost like it's almost like writing your own book. <laughs> you're cheating. You just <laughs> and I and I really, really enjoy narrative um, nonfiction feature writing. You know, for Daily Maverick. When you're talking about poetry, I was thinking about that. Um, I think it's a Japanese term of kintsugi, which is where you put gold into the cracks and it holds the whole vase together. And that was just the image that was coming to me, how poetry for you has been able to sort of, you know, hold things together or let the pressure off. It was just felt like a very, um, it felt very applicable to your work. I read um, your recent collection where you had the found poem. I think it was about a motor, motor mechanic manual. And I thought that was just fantastic. It was so brilliantly done. And I loved how you took, like you say, an ordinary thing, just confronted it with new eyes. And I think that's what poetry allows us to do in a way that maybe other forms don't necessarily. You know, we tend to look at things head on with nonfiction, especially. It's funny um, and, that you mentioned that poem. If you don't mind me quickly saying yeah, something, yeah, it was yeah. it was a found poem, and it really is about um, about how 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 the wheels can come off a car, literally. But I thought that it was the most um, profound encapsulation of of when you can feel change is happening. And I think the poem was written around about 2015, 2016, when, um, you know, Roads Must Fall was happening and, and all of that sort of stuff. And I could, it felt to me like there's this world was sort of juddering, you know, there was this going on and the wheels were going to come off. And I think the wheels are coming off. And yeah. now, and I think I think we can safely say the wheels are coming off now. And, yeah. and, and I find it, um, I found that metaphor fantastic. And, and and also slightly um, slightly thrilling. 
your latest nonfiction book, though, is a bit more lighthearted, I suppose, and satirical. Please, can you tell me a bit more about that? It's called The Karen Rules. How, how it started was uh, I started becoming aware of the Karen memes, obviously, around about, I think, two, two, 2016, 17, around about there. And, um, of course, the first, the first thing um, one has uh, in any situation where a kind of person, a type of person is being criticised is, oh, my God, I'm not like that. And I, um, I was just very fascinated by the fact that of all the names they could have chosen, they chose um, Karen, you know. Why was it Karen? Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I was watching this whole thing develop. And so and I realised after a while, okay, well, look, I, I, I'm not entirely safe. I am a product of a particular time in history, a particular country, a particular age, and um, I have a lot of Karen in me, you know. Um, never mind the fact that my name is actually Karen. You know, I am the embodiment of, of the Karen, um, of the memes. But I did make myself feel better about the fact that I'm not an awful human being. (laughs) I've had to watch some of these Karen memes for this book and I cannot believe that there are such appalling human beings out there. But anyway, so so I I was just fascinated by this. And then and also I've been recently been thinking a lot about the idea of what makes the rules the rules, who makes the rules the rules. And um, it's always the power group uh, that gets to call the shots. Um, and I thought, wouldn't it be really great if one could actually write a new etiquette book for a new time in which we actually pull the rug out of from under the people who make the rules and say, well, you know, your rules aren't necessarily the rules. So I decided that maybe we could just call them the, the Karen rules. But instead of instead of Karen being an awful person, let's imagine Karen using her power for good. So all of that energy that goes into being a nasty Karen, um, you know, if it was if it was channeled differently, what could happen? So I decided, well, look, I I don't think that I can do this on my own because, frankly, I was scared of the flack that I might have to take being fifty year old white woman and 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 not being able to see all aspects of it. So I thought I'm going to approach another writer. I need a comedy writer. Hey, I know a fantastic comedy writer and her name is Karen as well. <laughs> so I approached Karen Danes, who's a um a writer of satire and comedy and I've known her for a long time. And um I uh, asked her whether she liked the idea and she said Yes, she did like the idea, and she was very enthusiastic, and we decided that we would both write a chapter, and then we'd write a proposal. But I was busy working on a big translation project, and um, I could only start working on it in May, and working on the writing in May. But, of course, the wheels did come off in June, and um, there was a whole new, and and what had started off as merely um, a jokey book about about who makes the rules and what the rules should be and what actually are universal rules of good manners, Mm -hmm. it suddenly took on a whole different feel to it. it became far more serious you know because there was there was really serious shit going down in in june um that made all of us think about that maybe the time for change had had finally arrived and you know i keep holding thumbs that it, that it has but we couldn't i felt like we couldn't we had to sort of balance we had to make sure that, that it didn't come across as puerile mm-hmm. uh, and and um and and taking the piss and being too lighthearted about um, very serious stuff, and I was I was I think Corin and I were both actually a little bit tense that we weren't going to get that balance right. But the book was written within six weeks. Um, went off to the printer, the most fantastic designer put the book together in a beautiful way, and I've had to reread it now in the past two weeks twice, and I'm 
I think we're okay. I think we've done a funny book, which hopefully will make people think about who makes the rules and um, and and what what the standards are for um, interaction between people. I think the thing with this COVID moment is really that it's just shone a light on things on the way that the way that normal was actually so fucked up in the first place. And I think it's sometimes you need a bit of humor to allow you to drop your defenses and engage with some of the ways that you are part of the system that is structurally messed up and that continues to disadvantage people. And I don't mean you as in you, Karen, I mean you as in one, you know, the royal, we all need to think about it. And sometimes South Africans have an excellent sense of humor. And I think that's one of the healthiest things about our sort of shared identity is that we can take the piss out of ourselves quite easily. Um, But also just to go back, I think, a little bit around the idea of the single mother said to me in your mail that one of the things you would love to do would be to start a writing trust that would support single mothers. And I think that's just such a fantastic idea, acknowledging the different ways that the world continues to disadvantage single moms. I was busy doing some work before COVID started around gender equality in South Africa. And it's and even in a two-parent household, a woman is likely to do 107 more minutes Per day of house and childcare than her partner, um, and something like, you know, it was 80% of the women in the in a human sciences research council survey said that they were always the one who did the dishes, did the laundry, did the cooking, did the groceries, and did the childcare, which is just astounding. The unpaid domestic labour that we expect of women, and yet you say you've raised two died in the wool feminists. So how did you get it right? What is a quick tip for our listeners on how to single feminist mother and great make next generation of fabulous human beings better Karens and better Karens? <laughs> Probably the, the one thing is that I, you know, when I was growing up, I was I was always I, I was always so aware of how unfair everything was, um, and I I had very clear jobs to do in the house. I had to work, and um, I told myself before I had children that um, if I had a son, I would um, he would do the same work that my daughter does. Um, so that was that was very important to me. And the other thing is, I feel I feel like it's really important to make children work. <laughs> I think it's I think it's um, it's um, it's just a very important part about showing them how um, what it means to live with other people. You know, to not be um, to not be served, to develop your own um, sense of resourcefulness and uh, creative solutions to even the the most mundane things like um, how am I going to wash the dishes and get my homework in? Um, so, so that felt very um, important to me, and it, and it felt very important to me that um, that my that I was I was gonna I was gonna make a son who was different to all the men I had ever known in my life until I met the partner that I have now. So, you know, it was just this this like doggedness <laughs> to just change ideas about what women do and what what men do and what men are allowed to get away with. The little men are allowed to get away with. I felt like I was fighting battles all the time on this front, and um, there is a point at which you realise you're losing the battle, and um, you need to decide what to do with that. And you know, for many years, actually. I didn't have the energy to do all the things that I needed to do in the house and for my children and my work and also fight the principles. And I became tired and lax and silent. I became silent, you know. 
God, I just didn't have the energy left anymore for it, you know. And then, and when the when the relationship ended, I I thought, well, I've done I've I've done whatever it was that I needed to do as far as having children concerned, um, for myself and for the uh, the biological imperative. <laughs> um, and I was I was no longer going to have any long term relationships because really all you can rely on in the end is yourself. And um, but then uh, it turns out that there are three feminist men in the world and I married one of them. I didn't marry him, though. Sorry. I won't get married again, ever, ever, ever. <laughs> I didn't I say that you should never say never. I won't say that. Yeah. I'm married to one of the three feminist men in the world. And the interesting thing is that when you were with people like that is that they can point out the pollution in your brain, you know, because yeah. every now and again this, I come across something and I don't understand it and then my partner looks at me and goes to me, but she's a woman, that's why. Yeah. You know, she just wasn't yeah. given the same opportunities or whatever or or she's being she's being particularly victimised by the men in her party or whatever and I go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I forgot about the patriarchy. And fear, fear is so fascinating, you know, um, I, and I think about... That, that it doesn't really even come into people's minds that when they are uh, protecting what they consider to be theirs, whether it's culture or a way of doing things in the business world or, um, you know, the, the, the you know, corporations always saying, well, we'd love to appoint black, um, you know, black people in positions of power, but they're just not out there. We don't have them, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, what underlies that and what they would never admit to is is fear of um, a loss of of power. And I think that um, Karens, in fact, are, are a very good example of, of that, you know, because white women um, have really had a lot of power for a long time. In fact, in the Karen book of rules, I also make the point that I think that the, as awful as Karens are, I think that they are a product of of the successes of second wave feminism Mm -hmm. you know they're they're not necessarily deep um and philosophical and they don't think about the theory of feminism they probably many of them would probably even say oh my god i'm not a feminist uh, because they they don't like the idea of feminism whatever but they found their voices it was it's my generation that was the first generation of women to really almost universally as white women find their voices and be able to say this is not okay with me that's where Karen mm. comes from. And even though mm. Karen is a terrible human being and we all despise the way she carries on in the world, we have to say that she is also a sign of the success of an evolution. She is a sign of, of how um, power can eventually filter down to people who don't have power and that it's worth fighting for. I think maybe then the end goal is for everybody to feel that same sense of entitlement to both talking and listening I think lots of feminism is really about listening I think people have you know it's uncomfortable but it feels to me like there is pause there is mm. pause. people people are not jumping to defense as quickly um as they would have before which is a huge generalization but it does yeah. feel to me like I have seen um uh overtures to listening in the past few months, more than I have seen at any other time. And people seeing that there is a different way of viewing the world, not purely the way that we have as white people always viewed it. Mm-hmm. And I think that the book, the Karen Book of Rules, is will talk to those people who might for the first time be seeing things slightly differently or wondering how how to be in, in a world which in which they are not um, the, the same. I mean, it doesn't have all the answers and it's a fun book, you know, but um, I think people are really more ready to to listen than they have been before and that really is what change is about really it's these little 
these little incremental changes that happen over time. I think maybe the idea that, you know, people are starting to recognize that their discomfort at being implicated in the pollution of a patriarchal system, at having breathed that in and benefited it for a long time, their discomfort at feeling called out for that is less important than people's actual experience of living the downside of that inequality. So I think it's, you can never really tell from social media, it's always a scary place to go. But I do think that there is a sense that things have to change. They can't carry on this way. I have three last quick questions before the end. Um, so the first is you are an avid reader. Uh, could you recommend one or more books that have helped guide you or inspire you on your feminist journey? I, you know, when I thought that you're going to ask this question, I thought, oh, my God, what have I read? I don't read feminist stuff. And what am I going to say? I'm going to sound so stupid and, and I don't read theory and so on. And then I thought, but, but hang on, I'm sure I've got a feminist bookshelf. And I do, in fact. And it's long. And um, I found all the classics, all the classics. I actually took the I took a thing I'll show you, although you can't see it in the podcast. Some of <laughs> so the one I remember being, okay, first of all, the first most important one is I remember Pippi Longstocking being, being my feminist, independent, unafraid, wonderful embodied little feminist that I yeah she's all I wanted to be um and for a long time Pippi was also my um username in a particular forum because I just love her so much. but um probably the one that had a big influence on me at the when I was young was the woman's room so um it is a novel um the woman uh, the writer's name is Marilyn French and um it really is just about a woman in the 50s it sounds so old-fashioned now but how how she you know gets married has children and then ends up doing something better and it was the first time that i had had my imagination stimulated in a way about what my possible options could be uh for my for my future as an, as an adult um and then all the others were there they're all here the female eunuch um woman in love by sherheit um, Fiona Giles wrote a fantastic book called Fresh Milk, which is on breastfeeding. Um, the, the Vagina Monologues by Eve Ensler. But it doesn't matter what I read. It just matters that one reads. Really, I can't, there's no, I mean, these are so old. You, you know, it's not, this is not going to help any, any, any young feminist from now. Really, it, it doesn't matter what I read. But the, <laughs> what matters is just reading. It is, reading is just the, the greatest pleasure and the source of everything. Two, do you have a feminist or other quote that inspires you? Um, no, I was kind of hoping you wouldn't ask me that. I know that there's this poet called Vishlava Zimborska, and she she said this thing, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I should have actually put it in front of me, but she said this thing that I always loved the most, and it's like that um, she can't, she doesn't like it when people have answers. It's the people who have answers that cause all the problems in the world. Um, and I think that that is part of, possibly one of my favourite quotes. And if it's one of my favourite quotes, I should really know it off by heart, but I don't. And then finally, just to end off, what would be your advice to a young feminist starting off or starting to open their eyes to the way that the world could be different? Oh, I don't have any advice for anybody except <laughs> just read, you know, just read. <laughs> just so reading is just such a joy, you know. It's such a it's such a joy. Um when it allows you to escape it's such a joy when it makes you grow it's such a joy when it makes you so uncomfortable that you don't really know what to do next um it's such a joy to have the world opened up to you I mean I'm never going to be able to you know live in Vietnam or in Bali or in Argentina 
but I can read about those places, you know. Mm-hmm. I did not grow up in a family that came from, you know, wealth or education or, or any of that. But my my parents read to me, you know, and it's been everything. It's been mm-hmm. everything to me. And and um, it's a private world that nobody can ever take away from you. It's just yours to escape into, and you can do so much. And, and really, it's the only... I don't think I can advise people to do anything. I have no idea how to do anything, but just read. I think that is a fantastic way to end off, and I wholly concur. So, Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you, Jen. I enjoyed it so much as well, and I've, I've loved the books that you've put together, and I feel like you are doing such important work in, in, in giving South African feminists a voice. You know, it's um, it's a huge lacuna in our own um in our own body of literature in South Africa. So I'm full of admiration for the work you do. Thank you. You can get your copy of the Corin Book of Rules out now in all good bookstores and follow Corin on Twitter at Corin Shimka. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.